Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us. Welcome to this episode of the Sounds of Integration. Here, interviewers Dr. Dan Fisher and Dr. Hiab Johannes are interviewing our very own Professor Alison Phipps about her experiences as the UNESCO Chair of Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. The interview takes place in the context of the winding down of the second New Scots Refugee Integration Strategy and its soon-to-be-born third iteration. A lot has changed since 2018, including the war in Ukraine, the Nationality and Borders Act, and the UK government's continuing efforts to remove people seeking asylum to third countries such as Rwanda. So, thinking forward to Scotland's new refugee integration strategy, we discussed the role of the languages and arts in integration, the term New Scots, the importance of a rights-based integration approach, and what the third iteration of the strategy should include and look like. And spoiler alert, the answer is permaculture. So, Alison, as UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through the Languages and the Arts, we have heard you mention previously that your insistence that through languages and the arts be included in your title. Can you please elaborate on why this inclusion was integral and what roles the arts and language play in the process of integration? Thanks, Dan. That's a great question and, and goes back in time quite a bit to when we were first conceiving of the UNESCO chair. And we were really thinking, how can we both work with normative ideas like refugee integration, which as we know are highly complex questions and are fraught terms, but also ones which are beloved of policymakers and very popular internationally and nationally with governments. So how can we work with those normative structures in a way that is both critical and creative? And the insistence on bringing languages and the arts to bear on that was really as a result of enhancing the conversations that are already in existence around integration. So what I'd been noticing within New Scots Refugee Integration Strategy was that New Scots was really only just beginning to acknowledge the role of language as a key facilitator of common interaction, common conversation, societal construction, and of the forging of new relationships between yeah, receiving and arriving populations between new Scots and old Scots, for want of better words. But equally, culture was a bit of an afterthought, a bit of an add-on. And in my experience, as well as through my own disciplinary perspectives, I have seen again and again the absolutely critical role of culture as the fundamental building block of new relationships in any place where people arrive as migrants, as immigrants, as people who have moved internally, as people who've just moved from two streets. You know, it starts with the cup of sugar passed and shared over the hedge. It starts with the, hello, how are you? Those are the fundamental building blocks. So I really wanted to see that acknowledged as the kind of baseline for the work. But also, I think for me, there was uh, also, I would 
I term it absolutely a political angle to this, which was about saying both languages and arts are Cinderella disciplines in the academy. They are both areas where people believe you'll work for nothing. They're both areas where you know, artists are regularly asked to just give their time, give their talents, come along, perform. And it's something we've really struggled with with our artists in residence in the UNESCO team to get external people to understand that artists need to earn money. And we've seen this in spades through COVID. You know, there would have been mass mental health breakdown without the contribution often given very generously for free or for next to nothing by artists to the sustaining of the mental life of the planet. Um, but equally, that, that's true of language too. So language is something given to us, like culture, by largely our mothers, but certainly the society around us. We do nothing as human beings to gain a language ourselves until we start to practice what we've heard around us. So it is something that is given that comes out of what is largely a gift economy. We only speak with the accent we do because of what we hear around us. And that's true of a first language, but also second and third languages. And, you know, if you look at the way in which neoliberalism constructs language education, then it's largely women on temporary contracts, precarious salaries, paid next to nothing, asked to do it for free. It's often in marginalized hours and in marginalized spaces within society. And therefore, I wanted through the connection of languages and the arts to the rightful designation with UNESCO, which is the United Nations arbiter and protector of languages and the arts through the treaties to kind of enhance that protection, but also the understanding of the role of languages and the arts. So I suppose that would be the second reason why that was part of the work. And then the, the third reason um, really came from, I suppose, a, a desire to enhance practice. So both languages and arts are practice-led. They develop their disciplines, yes, empirically, but through the embodiment of process, through the, the doing of things, and then the reflection on this. And again, I wanted us to be part of that critical turn and creative turn that is part of also the decolonizing agendas. Um, Mignolo speaks about it, Boaventura de Souza Santos speaks about it. Ungugi Wationgo's work was very much predicated on this, um, as to a certain extent was Fanon's and even Chamoiseau. And I really wanted that methodological work, which was quite new, um, certainly to social scientific research, but also even within the arts and humanities, to be given more space and more credence and more time. So languages and the arts were there very much for those three reasons. I suppose also I was aware that, so this would be a fourth reason, in talking about refugee integration, certainly in social sciences, the space was largely taken up by geographers like yourself, like yourselves, uh, by lawyers and by legal perspectives, by sociologists, by educators and by health professionals. And all of that I understood very much was significant and important and is very much reflected in you know, the, the bonds and the indicators of integration that we see in Adrian Strang's model, for example. But again, when I was looking and really following through those intellectual questions of my own, 
that were identifying language and culture as critical, then I really felt that there was a degree of redress required. Seamus Heaney in his Nobel lecture talks about the redress of poetry and the governance of the tongue. And I have always been struck by the, the genius of those essays, but also the importance of that statement, the redress of poetry, the way that poetry, language, a change of a turn of phrase, an opening out of a new understanding, the performance of a play or a song can really kind of catch an emotional attention and effective attention, but also create something that is a new unifying presence in a way that policy indicators, technocratic procedures will always struggle to do so, will always be a bit, um, I suppose the word might be gauche in that context. And wanted, you know, not to be muscling in on quite well-trodden territory that was really well-established within the refugee studies field, but to actually work within my own field of intercultural studies and particularly intercultural language studies, and then more broadly within the arts and humanities, to think with the figure of the refugee as an artistic, as a cultural, and as a languaging creature of the world and to think what would happen if the perspectives, yes, of refugee studies were brought over into those domains. Maybe it's from talking to you on an almost daily basis, Alison, but the kind of, well, when I speak to people in the fields, language now seems like a kind of obvious or um, really key part of the story that people are mentioning. Is this then something that is new in Scotland, would you say, this recognition of the importance of language? And have you and your work struggled with the, the policy lingo of things like indicators of integration and how do you work language and culture into this? Yeah, they're really helpful two-parters, but also probably quite different. So can I take the first one first? I struggle with quite a lot of the normative language of policymaking, but I understand what it's doing and I understand it's necessary as a kind of, I wouldn't say lowest common denominator, but as a, as a kind of cover to that everybody can understand what it's talking about, that gives us a jumping off point into creative and critical work. And so I can see what the kind of mainstream work is that indicators of integration needs to do, but I always want to delve, I suppose, a bit, a bit deeper into what's underlying it. What are the indicators of integration telling us about integration? What is it that that means integration is imagined to be by those with the power to imagine it and to institute it? What is it that it tells us about the, the power brokering within our own institutions? And I think all of that is right and good. You know, we, we only have institutions to do a lot of this work with. And, um, you know, as the philosopher Gillian Rose has said, you know, our institutions may be broken, but we need to kind of work within that brokenness to find ways of constructing new realities. See, I do, I mean, I struggle a lot with the language of what Seymour Bay calls the middle range you know, because it's also kind of wooden and ephemeral and 
you know, I would say this as a poet, I suppose, as un unpoetic or unimaginative. But also I always feel like it's kind of, it's like gears grinding. It's like, it's not really taking me forward. So it kind of keeps me treading water where I am. Yeah, I'm always really looking for a kind of an interesting phrase that can open out a space to take us somewhere else. And I think quite a lot of my scholarship has been hallmarked by that. So, you know, bringing ethics together with intercultural has been one of the things that I've been known for in the past, you know, whereas intercultural was always known as was always collocating with competence. And my problem was with competence. I was like, surely we can do better than just competence. Surely competence is not the most exciting thing that human beings can do together interculturally. And surely there's an ethical set of responsibilities in our interactions with one another. What would happen if we took those seriously? Or, you know, intercultural methodologies, which might start to work with practice and arts, again, which to me are absolutely critical to how we work with um, asylum seekers and refugees, as opposed to extractive methodologies that go in, that do cohort studies, that do interviews, that pull and suck data off people, analyze it, do it on their own. Yeah, often people will then accuse us as researchers of doing it for our own, you know, agrandissement. I mean, honestly, the benefits of doing academic research are so minuscule most of the time in today's world that I don't know that those those accusations stick so much. But I do think it's a much more interesting question to say, how do we collect data ethically? And in a way that the collection of it will be additive to the communities we're collecting it with and for and from, then how can it be additive to the academy alone? Because the academy is not an ivory tower and it doesn't exist in isolation. And it does exist with its communities roundabout. And I do think we're in the process of a real revolution of knowledge at the moment, which is about epistemology, which is about the ethics of the episteme, which is about countering epistemicide, which is about enabling the academy to be, be better than it has been. And to be part of that, I think, is a really important, and for me, a, a real lifelong activity. And it's always going to be a struggle and it's never going to be served by terminology like competence or terminology like indicator or even terminology like integration. It's going to need a wider vision. It's going to need the language, as Heidegger says, of the poets who have this ability to, to unconceal being, he says. And I love that idea that there are ideas which we only see through a glass darkly, but actually with that kind of acuity of 2020 vision, that kind of superpower that is the superpower of poets, or of, I've found it again and again in second and third language learners or ESOL learners, you know, people who speak a language or see something from a different basis in their mother tongue, they will just, you know, oh, the power of the gifted gears to see ourselves as others see us. Now, that wonderful moment where suddenly you realize how people see you and you are, you are revealed to yourself for the first time. And I just love those moments where language does that. And I've, I've had them so often in refugee communities that I think it's a really, these are really beautiful moments of a revelation of knowledge, not of discovery by the researcher, but of ways in which through conversation, through collective work, through courage of others to speak a language that wasn't their mother tongue, which is always a hard thing to do, and to speak to somebody who they perceive as having power, 
but to tell a truth that something new happens. And certainly to come to the first part of your question, Dan, that's how really in 2015, we were able to make breakthroughs around language policy in Scotland. And I remember my friend Bertin from Motherwell, who is from DR Congo, was part of the Gateway Projects, just talking about the strangeness of people in this country. You know, you people, you, you are really quite rude. You do not speak to us in the streets. You know, and there being a real shock in the, you know, nice, middle-class, privately educated, largely female policymakers in Scotland going, but we're trying to be so nice. And we would like to speak to you. And then, you know, Alison Strang's really brilliant insights around that, about the fact that in temperate zones where it rains all the time and you wear Gore-Tex and you've got your hood up and your umbrellas blowing inside out. The reason why you don't speak to people in the streets is largely created by the physical circumstances of weather, which are also circumstances which mean people might not feel they can integrate easily if they've come from climbs where you can speak to each other in the street without you know a downpour meaning you are going to be so deruke and miserable and wet and cold that you're not going to want an easy conversation and the way that everything changes in the summer in Scotland with the light nights and with the, the nice days and people do speak to each other a lot in the street and they linger on street corners you know and that geography of street corners that I've always loved so much you know becomes such a seasonal thing Whereas it's such a you know, year round thing in, in areas of the world where the deluge of the west of Scotland is, you know, with some of the highest rainfall on the planet is not mitigating against those kinds of conversations. But that was a revelation that was, revela- that was revealed knowledge to me. That wasn't something that was a discovery made by us. But out of it, we were then able to ask and lobby the government for money to, to share languages in the way that that had happened to say, look, well, What would happen if we did share our language, if we were able to be in conversation with each other's mutual languages, if there was a bit more speaking of French with French speakers and Arabic with Arabic speakers and learning of Swahili with Swahili speakers. And it doesn't need to be everybody, but these language cafes that have sprung up out of the sharing lives, shared languages, but also the new strategy then moved ESOL up from it being a footnote in the predecessor for New Scots One, for it to being an, an element and a footnote and even an aim and objective in New Scots One, and then in New Scots Two, it being under the, the, the right to speaking your mother language, being enshrined as an area and a domain in and of itself, and an important one. And we've certainly found in New Scots Two, as I've been chairing it, that language and education have been indistinguishable for one, from one another. And we're seeing these multilingual schools, these hospitable environments being linguistically hospitable environments and schools coming forward. We've seen the holistic integration projects at Scottish Refugee Council and the Red Cross being about people having language competency. And I was just recently at the Afghan event in Parliament. And again, really lovely to to meet the integration officers who were all speakers of Pashto and Dari, where it's now normal. That's normal that you would employ people who are speakers of these languages to do the work of enabling people to find their way when they arrive, culturally, socially, ethically, healthily, in terms of work, in terms of education, in terms of the law. And I think that's been a far bigger element of the work of integration and paved the way for the kinds of you know, things we find in, in those you know, social, social surveys that Scottish Refugee Council has done about how we are doing as a country at being able to 
know how to be with one another interculturally in a language space. So I think those are things we've struggled with. You know, we're nowhere near the point where we've got adequate funding for language. You know, the adult learning strategy is a travesty of justice with regards to ESOL learners in this country. You know, Scotland is a multilingual country. It has Gaelic, it has sign language, it has Scots, it's ha- it has even Lalans and Dorish. These are indigenous languages. And this is always, to my mind, the first move you make in the journey towards acknowledging your multilingual mother tongues. Because anybody who does any degree of digging within their own history will find you know, that they don't speak with the accent that their grandparents spoke with, that this has changed over time, that migration is the DNA of the languages spoken and changed, that much of what we speak in the vernacular today was the poetry of the past and with other languages from the past as well. And so I think we're a long way from actually putting language where it needs to be in terms of its extraordinary superpowers for enabling foresight understanding for enabling people to be able to speak and learn in ways which are radically different to the neoliberal technocratic ways in which we manage language education so you know I've written about this in a recent sociology book on political education looking at the way in which you know the mother language of the global south is multilingualism you know the the way that people learn language or speak to one another is by going oh in my language we would say this as part of almost greeting level interactions on the street so where we talk about the weather others will talk about oh this is what we say or this is how we say it or this is my word for this or this is my expression for this or this is my wisdom in this language for this and just last night I was at the Royal Society of Edinburgh inducting Chirikuye Chirikuye as a corresponding fellow of the Royal Society and he was sharing that deep wisdom in a beautiful proverb in Shona which said in the mountains the mist is shared across all of the land and between the valleys. And it's the idea of a borderless world, you know, that mist can flow where it will, but that the mist will then nurture the environment, it will move freely with the climate and with the temperament that it will make the crops grow. And to me, it was very much an image of mother language and the way that this works and moves and shifts to different places as migration is for the majority of the world's populations and through most of human history, as we know from Graeber and Wengro's brilliant book, The Dawn of Everything, that it's just, it just is. And the, the ways in which we're trying to manage it are very newcomers to human history and are very bizarre. And David Gramling's work, both on the Ryla podcast, but also his book, The Invention of Monolingualism, and then the invention of the bizarre forms of multilingualism that we enact in our policy domains in this country really lay that bare really clearly through his really quite brilliant scholarship. Coming back to what you were saying about language and at the Afghan event at the Scottish Parliament, where it was normal to be hearing other languages, it seems to me that when we're talking about integration being a two-way process, that two-way process is often ill-defined. But it sounds to me like when you're talking about this, language and culture is maybe the the inroad to having a two-way process of integration. Does that sound about right? I don't like two-way process talk. I think it's better than what we had with integration almost as assimilation. 
but I don't think it's two way. I think it's much more like the mist. <laughs> and I think this is where I found models of permaculture really helpful for understanding it as an ecological process. So I think it is much more like the kind of mycorrhizal, almost fungal networks that are part of the wood wide web. I think it is something that is all kinds of very subtle means of communication that are going on between each other all of the time. You know, so if, when people say, you know, intercultural communication happens between a person who is English and a person who is French, I mean, it doesn't. That isn't a truth about what's going on. You know, there are so many other subtleties going on in interactions, and no person is purely made up of one essential culture. That's never been a truth about things. I mean, we can essentialize, we do essentialize, but it's always at best a chimera and at worst a huge reduction to the complexity of who we are and what we're made up of historically in the present, but also in the things we're imagining as part of our lives and into the future. But I think the kind of bilateral models have been helpful in just breaking the assumption that uh, which is a political ideology and it is pernicious that those refugees they will integrate into being like some weird normative bizarre amoeba-like construction of what culture might be in Scotland or in Wales or in Northern Ireland or in bits of England. I mean, I have no idea what that fabled past moment or present future moment of integration is in a singular model, but I, I do know it's fiction and it's a pernicious fiction. And I also know it is therefore propaganda and it is a propaganda of the right and it can lead to some really terrible places. And it is not helpful for models of integration that are seeking to have a Scotland in which all can flourish, which is the aim for Scotland, or to have models of integration which are ecological, which are always changing and shifting, and which might understand integration, not so much as a noun that you arrive at, but as a verb that is a process. Um, and that maybe echoes much more those, those concepts drawn out of theological um, liberation theology, of human integral development, which really are about saying, how is it that a person changes as being part of the life, the environment, the culture around themselves and grows gradually over time into greater wisdom, greater understanding, greater capacity to contain many different perspectives, but also have many different edges that can intersect with different areas in the world. So those would be much more the kinds of ideas of, you know, integral, integrating work as an ecological process that I would espouse and would be hoping gradually to be shifting people towards. But I also acknowledge that's not easy for a policymaking machine that relies on, you know, processes which are based on linear process, which are based on timelines, and which are, you know, quite frankly, based on political need and ideology that is often produced out of focus group and fear of voter concerns and ways in which our very own social scientific methodologies of the focus group and the interview are really turned against what is now, I would say, the more interesting turn in social scientific research, but which will take quite a long time to find its way into ways of being about policymaking. Thanks, Alison. Yeah, so maybe a bit of a you know, call for patience on myself as well. <laughs> it won't be my lifetime, but it might be one day.
patience is not necessarily a word. Well, I wouldn't say you're impatient, but I've definitely <laughs> never seen you sit still. <laughs> One of the key differences between Scotland's integration strategy and many other international examples of refugee integration is that it is centered on the notion of integration from day one. To do this, both refugees and people seeking asylum are termed new Scots by the new Scots refugee integration strategy. How did this approach originate and how crucial is the term new Scots for ensuring refugee integration in Scotland? Yeah, so I mean, credit for this really goes to my colleague Alison Strang and then Alistair Ager and Alison Strang for the work that they did together. And I think, you know, both of them coming out of the field of psychosocial well-being, we're looking at this question of how can a society flourish and really answering that question by saying, as I understand it, well, if we exclude anybody, we can't. So therefore, we must not exclude asylum seekers from integration processes in the way that they were seeing the policymaking in England and Wales doing this. And whilst Alison Strang was um, responsible for New Scots integration strategy and for formulating that um, part one, she was wanting to use methodologies that would be all-encompassing, so worked with the Ketso methodology that my colleague Joe Tippett developed at Manchester University you know, really very much to make sure everybody was included, regardless of language, regardless of background. But out of that came this understanding that the asylum process was a pernicious separator of people from society, and that we needed a policy that would acknowledge that that was flawed, and that therefore needed to state under the human rights framework that all have the right to seek asylum, that asylum seekers would be integrated from day one. Now, I think there's a slight misfortune maybe in the phraseology, but that's often the case with the kind of way things come out in the civil servant penning of, of things, because I think, you know, it is about a whole society approach to this. It isn't just that asylum seekers will be integrate or can integrate. It's that the whole of society will be involved in adapting to the kinds of ways of life that are required for asylum seekers to live a whole and healthy life in the place where they have arrived. And that's a really tricky one, as you know, and I know well, when legal definitions and legal status has yet to be determined. And I think we're seeing at the moment a huge amount of fluidity around the term asylum seeker. You know, we are regularly, and you and I are no exception um, here, we're regularly defaulting to more nebulous, poetic, liberatory terms like seekers of sanctuary, seekers of refuge, even seekers of asylum, so that the seeking is what is important in terms of the human activity and not the nouns asylum seeker, refugee, even you know, sanctuary seeker, we're really moving away from those because of the way in which the language of the right has tried to exclude. But I think that legally, and again, you know this all too well, we absolutely need the clarity of definition that is the refugee and the asylum seeker. Those are determined under law. They are their own creatures in terms of legal construction. And I think we have work to do and to keep doing to uphold the terminology that has been established under the rule of law and to keep it firm, but at the same time to be doing the poetic work, which in that slice of life that is not 
I wouldn't say not under the rule of law, but is where we do not need to be only bound by the categories of law, but we can be bound by categories of life. We can speak of sanctuary seekers. We can speak of um, restorative integration, as you have done here. We can speak of the regenerative ecological processes that are about saying, despite the fact that somebody seeking asylum has not yet been given a grant of asylum or may be refused asylum or may have to appeal asylum many times over, there is still a healthy life that can be lived within a society that will deem somebody living in Scotland from day one as a new Scot, as one of Jock Tamson's bands, as somebody who, even if only temporarily, is part and parcel of that society. And I think it's something that can stretch beyond people seeking asylum. I think it is also something that often in my research on tourism and hospitality in Scotland, I've seen tourists craving through language and culture on day one or two of arrival on the Isle of Skye. I have seen German tourists repeatedly want to know how to speak words and pronounce words in Gaelic. I have seen people repeatedly want to imbibe drink, whiskey in particular, but other things too, or to eat breakfasts, particularly a full Scottish, that might change their physical, physiological makeup, even only for the 24 hours where they're trying on a Scottish archetypical identity as part of integrating into respecting the culture, the mores, the life of the place that they are visiting. Now, there are many things we can say about metonymy and the way in which this functions within tourism and society. But I think it's really important to recognise that these are also new Scots for this period of time. And they're new Scots under law as well, in that when you arrive in a country, you are bound by the law of that land. You as a tourist can be as deported for breaking the law as you can as an asylum seeker. It's just an easier process if you're a tourist because there might be a safe country to which you can quite easily and without too much trauma be returned, whereas in the asylum process, that's absolutely not the case and we need to come up with other ways of determining it. So again, I mean, it takes me back to language and culture, these absolutely physiological experiences and particularly to language as a physiological experience of pronunciation, pronouncing the world as, as Freire speaks about it. So I think that probably goes some way to um, addressing that question and really wanting to maintain, I want to have my cake and eat it as well, or maybe my scones and eat them as well, because I want, I want those categories under law, because as futile at times as the rule of law might seem to be to us here, it is the best we've got. And as difficult as those categories are, particularly for people you know, like yourself from Eritrea and for subjects who are excluded from and have never been able to embrace the rule of law or understand it. And as problematic as the rule of law is, as an enlightenment set of contexts that arose during those periods of time where the enlightenment saw the rule of law as critical and constructed things which are not shared by the majority of people in human history. It's really at the moment one of the best instruments we have for at least trying to make a few things better but there is another world 
it is possible. We do live in it. We do make it together day in, day out in many myriad different ways across Scotland. We see these during refugee festival, during the many community events that people hold, during the things that go on when you have an Eritrean coffee ceremony or you meet and share food or song. You see it at wedding ceremonies, at funerals, all of these places where despite it all, what it means to be human continues to be enacted. And for me, the inclusion of people in that, regardless of the label of asylum seeker or seeking asylum, just the ability of new and old Scots to do that together, those are the things that to me are the dignity bearing elements in New Scots refugee integration strategy that I would really be prepared to go a long way to defend. I think we need to hold on to them and we need to have them as aspirations, regardless of what the Nationality and Borders Act is pushing us towards at the moment. Thank you, Alice. And if I may ask a follow-up question on that, people like Heidegger, the great philosophers have been really critical because of their totalizing notions of understanding what it means to be a human. And here we, we're using the term new Scots and isn't that term itself a kind of a totalizing term? And in particular, when it's also seen against the old Scots, so we, are we not creating like two binaries that are really totalizing and also kind of, there might be some kind of tension between these terms as well? Yeah, I, I think that goes to the heart of a key tension that I see between participatory, co-creative, methodologies that are all inclusive and the kind of consensus building that comes out of that towards terminology that a group will choose to describe themselves and that is where the new Scots terminology came from people didn't want to be refugees and they didn't want to be asylum seekers in the strategy and they felt that new Scots was a good term and it's a problem because it is all of these things as well, Heab. So we want to respect the language that people, particularly those with lived experience, choose for themselves. And yet as academics, we can see that it creates yet another binary and yet another situation where we have those who might not want to be Scots. We have those who might not want to be new. We have those who might be old, those who might not want people to be called Scots. We have all kinds of fraught new opportunities for critical thinking just within that one term when it comes into being. We also have the whole history worldwide of, you know, the, the new Australians um, was one of the, the terms used for those who came over from the UK to settle in Australia, you know, and that's then been a discredited history. No doubt the term New Scots too will pass into being. But I think at the moment it's a bit of a translation term. To me, what it does is signal that the categories of refugee and asylum seeker are problematic and are also totalizing and diminishing at times of people to as a legal status. I think New Scots has an ambivalence to it because obviously you can't yet have a Scottish citizenship because Scotland is not an independent country. So therefore it's got the kinds of freedoms in the terminology that we identified also. You know, when we look at the scholarship of why many countries romanticise Scotland, so you know, France and Germany in particular romanticise Scotland, and many of the, the, the scholars who've worked on this, I'm thinking of John Glenn Dinning's work, some of my own, some of Gavin Jack's work, 
look at this as being because this is the nation that isn't a nation. This is the country that doesn't have a border that wants a border. This is a country that's been colonized but hasn't been colonized. So that Scotland occupies a place in the world imaginary as the diaspora that was able to settle in a way that didn't necessarily form lots of Scots ghettos in different parts of the world, but was able to export, you know, <laughs> the Burns Supper, the Old Lang Syne elements of Scots language in ways which seem to have been weirdly, wonderfully, much more um, amenable to incorporation into mainstream life and popular culture and popular imaginary and different cultures themselves, you know, tartan and music um, in a very different way to, you know, say the Italian ghettos or the Irish ghettos that you found in those 19th century mass um, emigrations. So I think within these Scots, you've also got the residue of those notions too, that wouldn't be the same if you spoke about the new British because there you have got the concept of a, a nation state. So you've got something there that gives you a bit of latitude, that lets you play with borders and boundaries, that lets you be a little bit more like the mist I was speaking about earlier. I'd love to find a better term and I haven't done yet. And I, I do keep trying to think about it. You know, I often, I, and I've done some lectures thinking about the notion of drift, again, which you know, echoes the idea of mist. Um, rather than the kind of classic social scientific terms of migration or displacement or forced migration or refuge or asylum seeking, I like thinking about migratory concepts. I worry a bit with nomadism, but I just think we haven't yet found something to really adequately describe all the nuances that we're, we're talking about. And for that, we do need the poets. We need also words that we find in other languages. And I suppose this is where I'd I'd signal some of the work that Heaven Crawley and Tawana have been doing, Tawana Satoli have been doing with many of us in my deck, where we've been looking at the word for migration in different cultures and breaking it down or migrant in different cultures and breaking it down. And of course, it doesn't mean what we mean by migration. Yeah, it actually reveals our conceptualization in Global North epistemologies of migration to be highly circumspect, narrow, limited, and actually, when you start to look at the word in Amharic or in Tigrinya or in French or in German or in Gaelic or in Tereomari or in Chinese or in uh, Burkina Bay, when you look at it in these languages, you find that a whole world of differences opened out. And again, you know, very much like the, the kind of intent behind Graeber and Wengro's work in The Dawn of Everything, where they're really saying, you know, <laughs> that our conceptualizations and our understandings based on enlightenment thinking are unnecessarily dull, are wrong, and are highly limited. I mean, I, I'm just dancing with conceptualizations from other languages at the moment that has come through the work we've been doing in my deck. And I think it's there that we need to turn and we need to let go of our hegemonic monolingual English language insistence on terms, even like New Scots, because they're just, they're just too limited. And when I, even when I go to the Gaelic and look at the, the conceptualizations and the terminologies there that we might use, and um, when I look at some of the kind of diminutives that are there for 
welcoming the other in Scots, then already we're into a, a gentler space, a different conceptualization, something that isn't as fraught and problematic. So that's a very long way of saying, yes, Hiab, I agree. Refugees in Scotland can now vote in elections, which seems to be a huge step for Scotland to take, but people seeking asylum cannot. Does this risk of having too tired system of writers within the new Scottish itself? Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't just risk it, it is. There is a two-tiered system of rights within Scotland as a result. Um, and I think we're also seeing a two-tiered system of refugee status, at least, if not three tiers. Every time the UK government comes up with a new category of refugee, be it the vulnerable persons resettlement or be it the Afghan resettlement program or the Homes for Ukrainians under the super sponsorship program, we're seeing yet another fudge that discriminates and creates new categories of rights-bearing subjects, but of differentiated rights. And in it, we repeatedly see the same category of people being most denied their rights. Largely people who come from certain areas of Africa and the Middle East. And I would obviously here single out those from the Horn of Africa and those particularly from areas of the Middle East and Palestine in particular. This has been a long history. This is inscribed in the immigration laws of this country, as Colin Yeo and, and others, as Amelia Gentleman and Mae Bullman have all pointed out recently, just this week in the press yet again. Our laws and our immigration laws in the UK are racist by determination. They were designed to keep black and brown people out, and we keep tweaking and perpetuating the DNA of that from its inception, rather than actually saying we need to absolutely radically say, if we wish the law to be what we follow, that all are equal before the law and all are not. And that is something that remains to me a stain and a scar on our claims to be a country in Scotland that is um, upholding human rights, that is trying to see its devolved settlement as um, inscribed in the European Convention on Human Rights. And that really is messy. It's a fudge like so much between the devolved and the reserved uh, matters. And it's being tested to breaking point by, for example, the Nationality and Borders Act at the moment. And I think other legislation that's coming down the road with the, the new Bill of Rights that the Deputy Prime Minister is bringing forward as Minister of Justice that will replace the Human Rights Convention. Um, all of these, I think, will see the curtailment of rights for some and the protection of rights for those who largely will be in the category of those who are male, who are white, who have money. That may include migrants who are male and white with money, but we're certainly seeing that and we're able to map it and we're able to see it tested in courts of law. So I think, yes, we are already there, Hiab. I don't think it's a risk. I think it's already happened. And the question for me is really, what can we do to protect the existing rights because we're constantly under threat, but also how can we claw back some of the space we have whilst at the same time having a better imagination of what it means to be human and what it means to bear the dignity that should be part of human life. And for that, we then need to turn to models that have, have come to exist in the contexts where dignity is born, but maybe human rights are not so strongly embedded as concepts. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow, www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.